This morning, I'm going to give you a message that I preached like two weeks ago in London, and it's on a passage that we looked at back in 2016. So I'm hoping, well, I have mixed feelings on it. I was going to say, I'm hoping none of you remember it, (laughs) right? But I don't want to say, I hope my sermons are not memorable. But we're going to go back to this passage. It's the parallel of what we read this morning in our reading. Matthew chapter 15, turn there. And I want to look at what is a singular incident in the earthly life of Jesus. We're going to start at verse 21 here. Here we meet this desperate mother whose faith is truly great. We also get a look at Jesus as we have never seen him before. The woman has a demon-possessed daughter, and she seeks Jesus' help for the girl. But in this instance, Jesus seems uncharacteristically aloof and abrupt and even apathetic about this poor woman's plight. This is not how we know Jesus to be. And in fact, if Jesus is known for anything, it's his gracious compassion for afflicted people. Isaiah 42, verse 3 is that famous messianic prophecy that's quoted verbatim in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 20, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. That's a prophetic description of Jesus' tender grace. The smoldering wick refers to the flax in a lamp when it's used up and burned out, and you can always tell when a lamplight is about to expire because the wick starts to smoke and smolder, and you normally would just trim it it off and refill the oil in the lamp or and trim the burnt portion of the wick away or even put a new wick in. And a reed, a reed in Scripture is always a symbol of weakness because a reed is a hollow stalk-like plant from a a grassy plant that grows along the riverbank. And a reed is very weak and brittle. It's it's woodier than grass, but it's, it's brittle. And you can whittle little holes. It's hollow. You whittle little holes in a reed and make a flute from it. And Shepherds would use these little flutes to calm the sheep. And in fact, to this day, reeds are used to make the mouthpiece in woodwind instruments. And they wear out easily when you use them. Clarinet reeds are sold in boxes of 10 for that reason. And a shepherd's flute would rarely last even a full day. And when it would wear out, they would simply snap it in two, throw it away, and get a new one. And so, The point of this prophecy, a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out, the point of that is to show the tender compassion of Christ. He always dealt with broken and used up people, not by discarding them, but by healing them, by renewing their strength so that they would mount up with wings like eagles and they could run and not be weary and they could walk and not faint. That's That's his ministry to hurting people. You see this, for example, when Jesus encounters a man who is totally insane, living naked in a graveyard and cutting himself with stones because his mind and his body were possessed by a whole legion of demons. And Jesus, you remember, cast those demons into a herd of 2,000 pigs. And in the very next scene, you, you see the pigs drown themselves, and the man is delivered from this demonic oppression, and Scripture says he's sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And that was the way of Jesus. Instead of rejecting or 
condemning severely broken people, he delighted in redeeming them. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's John 3.17. And uh, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, Jesus often had harsh and dismissive words for scribes and Pharisees and others who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's Luke 18, talking about the Pharisee and how he prayed. To people like that, Jesus could be very sharp and harsh. But to sinners who confessed their own guilt and sought freedom from the bondage of sin or relief from the bitter consequences of sin, Jesus always offered redemption. And he did it with such grace and compassion that his enemies scolded him for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they called him. And that was an accusation that Jesus received gladly. He came, after all, to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set free those who are oppressed. And when the Pharisees grumbled and complained and challenged Jesus about being a dinner guest in the home of some notorious sinner, Jesus said, those who are healthy don't have any need for a physician, but only those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this was perhaps Jesus' most surprising and memorable characteristic, because almost every time you see Jesus dealing with someone from far outside the circle of respectable society, always he is tender and compassionate and friendly, warm, approachable, and in fact, Jesus is often the one who reaches out to them, like the woman at the well or the man who was blind from birth in John 9. Jesus is the one who began those encounters. Never do you see him turning away anyone who comes to him for help or healing. And in fact, just a chapter before our text, if you're open at Matthew 15, look back at Matthew 14, 34. You read that Jesus and his disciples came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were cured. So crowds of needy people pressing around him, and he always healed them all. He never left anyone unhealed. And Scripture's emphatic about that. Luke 4, verse 40, All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Matthew 4, 24, They brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew 12, 15, Many followed him, and he healed them all. This is one of the unique and outstanding characteristics of Jesus' ministry. He simply did not turn people away. It didn't matter how loathsome or guilty or socially unacceptable a person was. Jesus always received those who came to him seeking mercy. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And he didn't. So, The vignette that we're going to look at today actually puts Jesus in an unusual light. You don't see him like this 
anywhere else in Scripture, but here he's looking for all the world as if he is detached and distant and even derogatory towards this woman who simply comes seeking his help for her daughter. So here's the context, just so you get the picture in your mind. Jesus has just had a major public conflict with the Pharisees. This starts all the way back at the beginning of this chapter 15. These powerful religious leaders are following him around Galilee, desperately seeking a reason to accuse him, and they keep condemning him for not following their Sabbath rules and not observing the extra-biblical rules that they have made for themselves regarding things like ceremonial cleanness. And in fact, the previous chapter, Matthew 14, records the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew 14, starting in verse 19, says this, that Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And notice, there's nothing there about ceremonial washing, because Scripture doesn't command it. It was only the Pharisees who did. And there weren't any wet naps passed out with this food. So at the start of our chapter, Matthew 15, some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus all the way from Jerusalem. Now, this was an official delegation. Most likely, these men had been sent by the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, "'Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread.'" And at that point, Jesus unleashes one of his angriest diatribes ever against the phony public self-righteousness of these Pharisees. In, in verse 14, for example, he says this about the Pharisees. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So he basically writes them off. Let them alone. That's the biblical equivalent of forget them, ignore them. They're, they're headed for destruction. They're going to fall in a pit. And this is one of the earliest in what became a long series of public denunciations that Jesus aimed at the Pharisees. It becomes a consistent thread through the Gospel of Matthew, and that thread includes Jesus' words about the unpardonable sin in Matthew 12. You remember, I hope, that his warning to them about the unforgivable sin, the unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that warning was aimed at these same phony religious leaders who fully understood that Jesus was the true Messiah. They knew that, but they rejected him anyway because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. And they rejected him with such force and finality that they had already decided they were going to put him to death at the first opportunity. They were going to kill him. They'd made up their minds on that already. And so Jesus' long war against the Pharisees culminates in Matthew 23, and that is a chapter-long Jeremiah against the ruling religious elite. And it ends with this summary judgment in Matthew 23:38. He He says to them, your house is being left to you desolate. He says that as he walks out of the temple. He's talking about the temple. Your house, he says, is left to you desolate. You know, from his early adolescence, when Jesus got separated from his earthly parents in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old, until that decisive moment at the end of Matthew 23, 
Jesus always referred to the temple as my father's house. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And now, suddenly, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He calls it your house. Your house is being left to you desolate, and then he departs from the temple for the last time. He never went there again, leaving it devoid of all heavenly glory, bereft of any divine presence, spiritually desolate, and then within a generation, the temple was literally and utterly destroyed by the Roman army, and it has never been rebuilt even to this day. And now, it's clear that these interactions with the Pharisees troubled and exhausted Jesus. He didn't like to fight. He didn't like to, to, to be angry. He was truly human, and in his humanity, he fully experienced all the normal, non-sinful weaknesses of human flesh. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus felt those weaknesses, the non-sinful ones. He got weary. He got thirsty. He became hungry. He, he felt the depths of sadness and the cares of earthly life just like you and I do. And he needed rest just like you and I do. And I think especially run-ins with the Pharisees like this left him mentally and emotionally and physically spent. And we know that because on several occasions he took time off from public ministry, or he tried to. In Mark 6.31, for example, he says to the disciples, "'Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not have time even to eat,' Mark says. And, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But listen to what happened. Verse 33, "'The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities.'" And got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And something similar happens in Mark 1. After Jesus heals a leper, he tells the man, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But then the very next verse says that the cleansed leper went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but he stayed out in desolate areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere anyway. Even the most desolate places... Jesus couldn't get any rest because multitudes followed him anywhere, everywhere. Because you would too. You'd go anywhere after him if you knew that he could heal any disease, he could liberate any, any kind of bondage. He made everything right. You'd follow him as well. And that's what people did. But it made it impossible for him to take time off from public ministry. And so here in Matthew 15, after that run-in with these Pharisees, who had come all the way from Jerusalem to oppose him, Jesus quietly withdraws with the disciples, with a few of the disciples, to a place near the coast of the Mediterranean outside the boundaries of Israel. Matthew 15, 21, And going away from there, Jesus withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's an area north of Israel in a region that today is part of Lebanon, and in those days, it was known as Phoenicia in Roman times, and it was a thoroughly Gentile district. 
Going there was a way for Jesus to escape the throngs of people he faced everywhere he went in Israel. And Scripture indicates this was all done secretively. By now, Jesus is desperate to get some time away, and so he probably traveled with just a handful of his closest, most trustworthy disciples, and they probably went under cover of night, and he manages to arrive in the region of Tyre and Sidon without any crowds following him, without anybody running ahead to get there before him. He wasn't there to preach or to do any kind of public ministry. He was there to rest and recover strength so that he could minister more effectively. By the way, that's always a good and wise thing to do. There are always these overzealous people who feel guilty if they take time to rest. Jesus, who was the embodiment of truly godly zeal, didn't have that perspective. He knew he needed rest. And the parallel passage that we heard this morning, Mark seven twenty four, says this, that when he had entered a house, he was wanting no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. So somehow, even in that remote region, Jesus was recognized and identified and word leaked out that he was there. And Mark's gospel says this happened immediately. But this time it wasn't a large multitude. It's just this one very noisy and persistent woman. And she shows up and interrupts Jesus' R&R. She's a mom with a severely afflicted daughter and she is in, the daughter is in bondage to a, a destructive demon. And so this desperate mother is relentless. Matthew fifteen twenty two. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And the verb tense there means that she was persistently, unceasingly, pleading for help from Jesus. She just kept it going. And now bear in mind, Jesus is in a secluded house. He's trying to get some rest, maybe even sleep. No doubt he's also spending time alone in prayer, as was his custom. He needs to recharge his energy so that he'd have the strength to face everything that he knew lay ahead So this is an important time of rest, and it was long overdue. His heart was burdened and heavy. He had just emerged from this exhausting conflict with this powerful group of Pharisees, and while he secluded himself in this house, the disciples are apparently supposed to stand guard to make sure that nothing and no one would interrupt Jesus' rest. But this woman simply refused to take no for an answer, and she wouldn't go away. And notice, even though she calls Jesus by a distinctly Jewish title, Lord, Son of David, it says she was a Canaanite woman from that region. That's how the Jews of Jesus' day would have referred to a Phoenician woman. The early Canaanites, the Old Testament Canaanites, were people who had been driven from the promised land because of their extreme wickedness. It was built into the culture of their tribes. This is a thousand years later. By Jesus' time, the descendants of those Canaanite tribes had become a culture of merchants and seafarers, and they were Gentiles not known for being religious. The Jews considered them unclean, and the fact that they called them Canaanites expressed a measure of contempt. It was, it was kind of a ethnic slur. 
but this was simply not a region where the typical Jewish religious leader would take his disciples to have a vacation, but that is what made it a place where Jesus might go and get away for a time from the incessant conflicts with the Pharisees and the pressing demands of crowds of curious and needy people who followed him everywhere. Here, at least, he could have some peace and quiet, or so it seemed, until this woman showed up. Now, if you're reading the ESV, the text there says she was continually crying, but the word in the Greek means to cry out. She may have been weeping as well, but the stress is on the volume, not the tears. She is shouting to Jesus at a volume that is intended to penetrate the walls of a house. So this is the kind of of high-volume howling shriek that is hard to hear, and it grates on your nerves. And although the disciples were apparently tasked with guarding the solitude of Jesus, they finally interrupted to beg him to respond to this woman. Verse 23, And his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. Jesus' response here, including his initial lack of any response whatsoever, is what might strike you as the most remarkable thing about this scene. There is something even more remarkable here, and I'll hold that till later. That is what I want you to see. But first, we need to work our way through this narrative. There are three stages in Jesus' dealing with this woman, and all three of them show us Jesus in a totally uncharacteristic light. So follow with me as we work our way through this text And let's consider each stage in Jesus' shocking interaction with this woman. Stage one, he seems to disregard her. His initial response to her plea is total silence. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Augustine, centuries ago, famously said of that text, he who was the word spoke not a word. And it's remarkable because the only other time you find Jesus refusing to answer, you remember when it is? It's when he's put on trial. Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14, And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor marveled greatly. It is a marvelous thing when Jesus is silent like that. At least seven times during the trial of Jesus, Scripture tells us that when he was charged with crimes by those who finally crucified him, he opened not his mouth. But whenever needy people sought relief or healing, no one was more responsive than Jesus. This is the only time we are ever told that anyone's plea for deliverance was met with silence. And yet, if you think about it, this is kind of a more common experience than you might deduce from the gospel narratives, right? I mean, we all have experienced this for reasons that we know by faith are good and gracious. God sometimes delays his answers to our prayers. Jesus even acknowledged that. He taught that although God always hears and answers our prayers, we need to be persistent in praying. He told this parable in Luke 11, verses 5 through 9, to illustrate that very point. I'll read his parable. He says, 
Which of you has a friend and will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot rise up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not arise and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And so I say to you, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What Jesus is saying there is keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, even if the answer doesn't come immediately. In fact, there's another parable in Luke 18 right at the beginning of the chapter there, that has a similar lesson. In fact, let's look at it. Mark your place here in Matthew 15, and and go with me to Luke 18 for a minute. Luke 18, I'm going to start at verse 2, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me justice from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice, lest by continually coming she wears me out. And then the lesson, as Jesus goes on to to give it, is that God is not like that unjust judge. God answers not merely because we persist, but because he loves both justice and mercy. And Jesus says he, God is eager to answer. In fact, here's the postscript of the, to that parable of the un, unjust judge. Jesus says this, starting in verse 6, hear what the unjust judge said. Now, will God not bring justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. And yet, despite this reassurance of God's willingness to answer our prayers speedily, it does sometimes seem to us as if our prayers are met with silence. In fact, you see an example of this in Scripture, one of my favorite passages, in the experience of Elijah. You remember the day of the contest with the Baal priests? When he prays for fire from above, and the answer comes immediately, he prays one sentence, and fire falls from heaven. Those Baal priests had cut themselves and pleaded with their gods, and Elijah spent hours making fun of them because their gods were silent. And when he prayed one sentence, God answered. And yet, later that same day, when Elijah prayed for rain to break the drought, he had to repeat the prayer six times, before he saw any answer at all. And furthermore, the seventh time he prayed, the only sign that God had heard his prayer came in the form of a tiny cloud in the shape and the size of a man's hand. Not much of an answer, it seemed, but Elijah understood that is how God works. God's timing sometimes seems slow to us. Remember, according to 2 Peter 3, verse 8, with the Lord... One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. And Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God makes everything beautiful in his time. His timing is always perfect. But to us, it can seem like the answers are awfully slow in coming. And it sometimes feels like the Lord is responding to us with cold silence, when in fact what he's doing is awaiting 
the perfect time. And we're prone to get impatient and frustrated. And Jesus knew that. So he assures us God is eager to answer us, but we have to be persistent too because sometimes God doesn't answer us in the timing we think would be best. His timing is always right. What's the proper response when answers to our prayers seem delayed? It's the same as Elijah. You keep praying. The Lord loves faith that perseveres. He wants us to be persistent. In fact, look one more time. You're still in in Luke 18. This parable that Jesus told about the widow who pestered the unjust judge, I purposely started in verse 2. And you, you see at the end of the parable how Jesus reminds his disciples that God is not like this selfish magistrate. God delights to answer our prayers speedily. And usually... The, the last line of any parable will give you the best clue about what, what's its central lesson. What is Jesus trying to teach? Usually you look at the last line and it tells you, but that's not the case here. The main lesson of this parable is given in verse 1, and that's why I skipped it, because I wanted to come back to it. He's telling them a parable to show that at times they ought to pray and not lose heart. It's a parable about persistence in our praying. It's an encouragement to be persistent. In fact, the old term for this is importunate, importunity. To be importunate means to be persistently demanding, relentless. In fact, that's the dictionary definition, persistently demanding. You just keep asking, and the implication is that when your prayers, the answer to your prayer is delayed, you should repeat your requests with increasing urgency importunity in prayer. It's commended in Scripture. It's a good thing. It's what we're supposed to do. When it seems like God is ignoring our pleas, the right response is importunity rather than impatience. Keep asking. And that is exactly what this desperate mother in our text did, so much so that it grated on the ears of the disciples. In fact, back to Matthew 15. I hope you marked your place. Matthew 15. Now look at Verse 22, she kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And the longer Jesus stayed silent, I'm certain, the more shrill her repeated pleas began to sound. And that motivated the disciples then to intercede on her behalf. And they're doing this, I think, not, not completely out of compassion, but mainly they want to get rid of the annoyance. The second half of verse 23, his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So now they're the ones begging. And, and don't misunderstand this. It's, it's not that they wanted Jesus to shoo her away without answering her request or just make her go away. You don't need to respond to her plea. They weren't saying that because they could have done that if that's what they wanted. They were probably thinking, Like this unrighteous judge in that parable, give her what she wants, if for no other reason, just to shut her up. And only Jesus could give her what she wanted, and so the disciples took the case to him. And in effect, their prayers, their earnest plea to Christ for peace and quiet, that joins in agreement with her prayer for mercy. So now it's a group petition, and amazingly, Jesus still doesn't respond with an immediate yes. 
And that brings us to the next stage of this drama. Stage one, he seems to disregard her. Now, stage two, he seems to discourage her purposely. His reply to the disciples' request is actually even more stunning and unexpected than his silence in the face of this woman's pleading. Verse 24, he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's like saying, this woman's a Canaanite. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As if the silence weren't cold enough, he now responds with what appears to be outright rejection. Now, what Jesus says here is perfectly true. His primary mission was to the nation of Israel. He had come as their promised Messiah, and in almost identical words, when he called the disciples and sent them out on their very first mission in Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, he told them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was coming as Israel's king. He is the right the the rightful occupant of David's throne, and his duty as shepherd to the Lord's people is first to call the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first. And Jesus is still in that phase of his ministry, announcing the kingdom to Israel. And so he's speaking truthfully here. This is not a gratuitous insult It's an honest declaration about what he was called to do, but still, it's not a truth that is suited to encourage this woman. Spurgeon says it like this, Jesus announced to her a fact which could not possibly assist or strengthen her faith. And in fact, more specifically, what Jesus is bringing up here points directly to the doctrine of election. More on that later, but But I love this, this statement from Jesus, which probably would have come across as a snub or a cold shoulder to the average person. It doesn't phase this woman at all. The typical person might have turned away or replied with coarse words and angry accusations or called him a racist or something. She sees it as an open door. Perhaps it was literally an open door. The disciples, think about it, they had to open the door to the place of seclusion in order to receive Jesus' answer to their message, and she seems to ignore the message and push past the disciples who were acting as bodyguards to Jesus. She goes right into the house where Jesus was and falls at his feet. Verse 25, but she came and was bowing down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, that's the same plea she's been making, but now she's abbreviated it into the fewest possible words. Lord, help me. It's full of pathos. And in fact, unless, unless you are totally inhuman, there is no way to picture this in your mind without feeling profound empathy for this poor woman. And although Jesus is God, he is not inhuman. He's a perfect human, and he's a thousand times more tender-hearted and em- em- empathetic than anyone you and I have ever known. And, and you see this clearly every other time in Scripture where someone falls at his feet. Even in Luke 7, when a woman of ill repute anoints his feet and has nothing but her hair to wipe the, the oil off with, the disciples are, or the, uh, the Pharisees are, are disgusted, but Jesus shows her 
the ultimate compassion. He forgave her sin completely to the chagrin of those self-righteous Pharisees. And then just one chapter later in Luke 8, verse 41, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet, implores him to come and heal his dying daughter. Jesus responds immediately. And while he's on the way to Jairus' house, a woman who had been ceremonially unclean for 12 long years, you remember she touched the hem of his garment and any Pharisee would have cursed and condemned her for what they would have deemed to be a defiling touch. But Scripture says, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus' response to that woman was immediate and tender-hearted, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In Luke 10, you know, Jesus commends Mary for sitting at his feet when Martha wanted him to scold her for not doing her part to serve. I'll put all of that together and look all through the New Testament and you'll discover Jesus never rebuffed anyone who fell at his feet, except here. And now we reach stage three, and this is the most shocking part of this surprising drama. To review, stage one, he seems to disregard her. Stage two, he seems to discourage her. Now, stage three, he seems to disrespect her. And when this woman, kneeling at his feet, finally begs him to his face, Lord, help me, his reply sounds like a deliberate insult. Throughout this entire subplot, Jesus has given every appearance of icy indifference towards this poor woman. His first response is cold silence. Then he gives her a cold shoulder. Now he responds with a cold put-down, or or so it appears, verse 26. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dogs, of course, were unclean animals. And in Old Testament times, no one, no Jewish person would have a pet dog. By the first century, dogs had been domesticated and trained, and Romans often kept them as pets. In fact, I've seen one of my favorite things in Italy is a mosaic in the floor of a home that was uncovered when Pompeii was dug out of the volcanic ash, so it dates to the first century, the time of the Apostle Paul. And it's a, it's a mosaic, a, an elaborate mosaic, with a picture of a dog on a leash and the words in Latin, cave canum, which is Latin for beware the dog. And there are warning signs like that all over Pompeii. There are also plaster casts of dogs that were buried in that disaster, buried in the ash. And you can still see in those plaster casts that the dogs had collars, indicating these were household pets or working dogs. And one other point here. When Jesus answers this woman, he uses the diminutive form of the Greek word for dogs, which communicates the idea of a small dog, a pet dog, a lap dog, which you might argue that mitigates the insult somewhat, but most people would say, Darlene would definitely say, it's not politically correct or polite at all to compare a desperate woman to a dog. In fact, there are those who've tried to make this a major point of controversy against Christ. When I was studying this back in 2016, I found an article about this passage 
from August of 2011 in that bastion of political correctness, the Huffington Post. (laughs) And the article is written by a woman whose bio says she is an ordained Lutheran minister. And she basically treats Jesus like he's an unenlightened bigot. In her account, the woman is the teacher. She's the hero of the story. And in the end, this woman says, quote, Jesus saw and heard a fuller revelation of God in the voice and the face of the Canaanite woman. And then she claims Jesus was forever changed by this encounter. She actually uses these words. It's blasphemous, but I'm going to quote it. She says, quote, Jesus finally heard and came to believe. It's one of the worst pieces of Bible butchery I've ever encountered from someone who claims to be a minister. In fact, if you can read Matthew's gospel and come to that conclusion, your reading comprehension skills are pathetic. But it is true that likening her to a dog sounds like an insult, but I want you to notice the Canaanite woman herself didn't take it that way at all. She doesn't argue the point. She doesn't become indignant. She doesn't even disagree with the characterization. In fact, she affirms it. She agrees with Jesus. I love how the King James Version translates her reply, verse 27, and she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Notice she affirms what he just said, truth, Lord. Here's an example of why I don't particularly like the NIV and some modern translations that play with words changing what it actually says into what they think it should mean. The NIV makes it sound like she's disagreeing with Jesus. Here's the NIV, verses 26 and 27. Jesus replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So they make it sound like she contradicts him, which is not how the conversation went at all. And it's vital to the story to see this. This is why Jesus commends her faith at the end. She freely affirms the truth of what he said. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Or as the Legacy Standard Bible has it, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs from their master's table. There's a confession of faith in her words. Jesus calls her a dog and she barks in agreement. It's an amazing exchange. She doesn't argue. She doesn't contradict him. She just keeps pressing her case. Nothing he has said or done can possibly deter this woman. Not his silence, not his apparent rejection, not even this barbed comment. She absorbs everything he says, and she interacts with it. She's listening to him. She just presses her point. She doesn't deny or even take offense at his classification of her as a dog. She's like that publican in Luke 18, 13, who stood some distance away and was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his chest said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This woman is confessing her own uncleanness. She's not making any kind of self-defense. She's just pleading for mercy. And she seems to have a pretty good grasp in a rudimentary way, a pretty good grasp of the doctrine of common grace. I mentioned Jesus had brought up the doctrine of election. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, they're the chosen people. That's God's elect. That's who I'm here to minister to. 
She's not even stymied by that. In fact, she seems to understand the principle of Psalm 145, verse 9, that Yahweh is good to all and his compassions are over all his works. That is the doctrine of common grace. God is good even to the reprobate. God's mercies extend far beyond the elect. There is no creature under heaven that hasn't benefited from the mercy and kindness and long-suffering of God. In fact, verse 16 of that same psalm, Psalm 145, says, is a prayer to God. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is good, and he's good to all. If she wasn't one of the chosen people, she could still plead the mercy of God. She understood that, and that shows amazing faith on her part. And notice, she also knew Jesus' messianic title. Maybe she knew other truths from the Old Testament as well, like Psalm 86, verse 5. God is good and by nature forgiving and abundant in loving kindness. And then 10 verses later, you, O Lord, are a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Somehow she understood that God is gracious and she just kept pressing Jesus for a crumb of that loving kindness that she knew as the defining characteristic of God. And I love the way she picks up on Jesus' imagery and just uses it. She paints a perfect word picture of the principle of common grace. Even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That analogy is loaded with significance. And it's true, too. We, We had a beagle for several years, and he became a little lethargic in his old age. Uh, you know, the, the doorbell would ring and he wouldn't even move. <laughs> but there was one thing that always made him active. Whenever he heard someone preparing food in the kitchen, he was there. You know, he might have been upstairs asleep in a corner, but if the refrigerator opened, he heard it. <laughs> and he was there in seconds, just hoping for a scrap of something that might drop to the ground. He would... He was better than a vacuum cleaner, frankly. (laughs) He would instantly dispose of any edible crumbs that fell to the ground. It didn't matter how small it was. didn't matter if it was dessert or vegetables. He was on it, and it made him supremely happy. You know, if he got a crumb of a stale Frito, that just made his day. (laughs) That's the same spirit this woman is displaying. A scrap of divine grace, that's all she wanted. Surely this is not an unreasonable request. And in the final verse of our text, Jesus responds by removing the mask of aloofness. And it was a mask all along. Jesus knew what he was doing. And there was a strategy to it. You know, John 2.25 says, Jesus had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He, He understood this woman before he ever started to deal with her. He knew what he could do with her. In fact, John 16, verse 12, near the end of the upper room discourse, Jesus tells his disciples, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he clearly knows what we can bear, and he knew what this woman could bear, and he simply took the opportunity to put her faith on display, and he did it, I think, mainly for the instruction of the disciples. And it's recorded for our benefit as well, So we see that Jesus won't break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax, but this woman was no bruised reed. And in fact, Jesus pays her a profound compliment that might have made even 
the leading figures among the 12, a little bit jealous, because you remember, and we've talked about this several times, Jesus often chided them about the smallness of their faith. He would frequently say to them, O ye of little faith. He said it just before he stilled the storm in Matthew 8. Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? He said that to his disciples. And in fact, he said it in the chapter just before our text. You remember when Peter begins to walk on water but starts to sink, Matthew 14, 31. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter had enough faith to step out of the boat, but Jesus still called that little faith because it didn't last very long. And he's going to say the same thing one chapter after this encounter with the Canaanite woman when the disciples forget to bring lunch and and Jesus catches them discussing it amongst themselves saying we didn't bring bread and they're troubled by that and again they're fearful this time they're perhaps fearful that Jesus might scold them for their oversight but Matthew 16 8 Jesus aware of this said you men of little faith why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? He's saying to them, have you forgotten who I am? You of little faith, why did you doubt? That's what he says to his disciples. By contrast, this woman never shows any doubt whatsoever, and Jesus' answer in Matthew 15, 28 is one of the most profound words of commendation he ever gave to anyone. He answers her prayer too. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. It's an amazing story, isn't it? And she's an amazing woman. And as far as I know from the biblical record, she's the only person Jesus ministered to on this trip to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And I think in the eternal plan of God, She was the real reason Jesus went there to get the rest he needed. The rest and refreshment, those are temporal benefits. But one believing soul is of eternal value. And this story is a beautiful reminder that the good shepherd will always leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it. This woman is admirable for three outstanding reasons. One, the thickness of her skin. Two, the tenacity of her faith. And third, the persistence of her praying. Those are qualities that are rare in the church even today. They were clearly unusual qualities even in Jesus' time, and that's why he commended her. She had an amazing capacity for doctrinal understanding and moral clarity as well. You see that in the fact that she's not stymied by the doctrine of election. She, she seems to grasp the principle of divine grace. She knew and affirmed truth when she heard it. Even those hard truths that seemed to put her in a difficult spot, she affirmed them. You never once hear her making any argument against the truth, trying to deny inconvenient truths. She saw with the eyes of faith that God's mercy doesn't nullify his truth, and vice versa. And she also understood that divine delays are not the same as denial. Jesus' silence wasn't a no, and she seemed to understand that instinctively. In short, she laid hold of God's grace by faith and just refused to let go. Her persistence was the proof of her faith. She's one of only two people that Jesus ever commended for the greatness of their faith. And the other one was a Gentile as well. It was the centurion whom you meet in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. 
And there in Matthew 8, verse 10, Jesus says of that centurion, Truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And in fact, remember I said at the start, there's one thing in this story that's even more remarkable than the way Jesus treats this woman. That's what it is. It's her faith. Her faith is the most amazing feature of this whole narrative, and Jesus himself says so. She's a Gentile from a pagan land, and yet faith like hers is rare even in Israel among the chosen people. One of the key lessons here, and it's the reason Matthew, who is writing for a Jewish audience, makes this story so prominent. In fact, this this whole account parallels in many ways the story of Elijah, who sought relief and refuge from Ahab in the attic of a woman who lived in this very same region. In fact, Jesus makes that point in Luke 4. Listen to Luke 4, verses 25 through 27. He says, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. God sometimes works outside the circles you might think he's devoted to. Here, God chose this lone Canaanite woman to be the recipient of saving grace, and she exhibited a degree of faith that was unheard of in Galilee and Judah, and so she stands as a rebuke to the multitudes in Israel who had such weak faith. But she's a rebuke not only to them and to the disciples, whose faith was so weak and fragile, she is a rebuke to you and me as well because of the ease with which we grow discouraged and stop praying. Even though we know God has promised to answer if we don't lose faith, she's a reminder that we should pray without ceasing and our prayers should be persistent and earnest and offered relentlessly and with stubborn tenacity because that is the kind of faith that pleases God. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for our prayerlessness and the frailty of our faith. Forgive us for doubting and for ceasing to pray. Hold us close, even in those times when heaven seems silent and like the sky is closed to our prayers. Keep us seeking you in faith. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We confess that on our own, we will always fall. Only you can keep us from falling, but you give more grace. And so we pray, multiply our faith, and may we lay hold of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.